The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, talking about great guests, we have one of my very favorite great guests, and we're going to be talking about... Privacy by Design, which we've talked about before, but we're talking about it even at a higher level, and Privacy Protective Surveillance. This has really come to the forefront with the, um, with the Snowden uh, revelations about NSA. So, But let me tell you about our wonderful guest who we've had on several times. I've been so pleased to get to meet her in person. I love her. She is just a wonderful person and an incredible expert and really my hero. So let me tell you about Dr. Ann Kavukian, who is recognized internationally as one of the leading privacy experts in the world. And she's noted for her seminal work on privacy enhancing technologies that the acronym is PET and her concept of privacy by design which seeks to proactively embed privacy into the design of information technology and business practices, too. Now, in October 2010, regulators from around the world gathered at the Assembly of International Data Protection and Privacy Commissioners in Jerusalem, Israel, and unanimously passed a landmark resolution recognizing privacy by design as an essential component of fundamental privacy protection. And this was followed by our own U.S. Federal Trade Commission's inclusion of privacy by design as one of its three recommended practices for protecting online privacy, which is a major validation of the incredible significance of this. I just honor Commissioner she is just wonderful, and I, I was so excited to become a, you know, a real promoter of privacy by design and actually became an ambassador to Ontario's Privacy Commission for Privacy by Design, and she is just, one, just wonderful, and you can li- learn more about her at our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy and also at privacybydesign.ca, our beautiful Canadian expert, Welcome again, Anne. We love you. Oh, Mari, thank you so much. I don't want to say anything because it, <laughs> it couldn't possibly stand up or meet your wonderful conference. Thank you so much for those kind words. Well, we are just excited to have you back. And every time, it just I learned so much from you. You were just really um, a, a great mentor for me. So thank let's you. talk to my audience about 
your role and responsibilities because we don't have privacy commissioners in our country. Right. So tell us right. about Ontario's Information Privacy Commissioner Office and what you do. So I serve as an officer of the legislature, uh, reporting directly uh, to the legislature through the Speaker of the House. And the beauty of that is it keeps me independent of the government of the day so that if I need to criticize the government, as at times I do when an investigation finds against them, I'm not curbed in any way because the government doesn't control uh, my budget or my activities. Uh, I enforce compliance with privacy laws and as well with freedom of information legislation. So both FOI and privacy fall under my jurisdiction, and I also have a mandate to educate the public and conduct research on both access and privacy-related issues. At times, uh, my office launches special investigations. I've got one that I just launched a few months ago, for example. We are investigating the release of some mental health information that, that was, it's always done with the best of intentions, that it was inadvertently released by our, a local police force who was responding to a 911 call, oh. and it was a 911 call to the police in a case of attempted suicide. They, they came to the house, they took care of the individual, took them to the hospital, everything's fine. But what I learned afterwards is that that information is automatically shared by the local police force with our national police force, the RCMP, and then our national police force automatically shares it with Homeland Security and U.S. border crossing officials. Now, the, the why of this is not clear, but I'm putting a stop to it. I understand that there may be certain cases where... There may be uh, a public harm arising if the individual is brandishing a weapon or, or some some of harm to the public. Right. But on an every single case basis, absolutely not. The default cannot be that this very sensitive information is automatically shared with police forces in both Canada and the U.S. So that's just an example of, of one of the investigations that I've undertaken. Well, you do such great work. Thank goodness. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about privacy by design and, and your, yeah. your seven uh, steps here for privacy by design because I, a lot of my audience may not have heard you before and I think this really applies not only to big government, not only to big corporations, but really we need to think about the little guy who's making an app or in, in his yeah. garage or or a law office. And, you know, privacy by design really needs to be implemented and privacy by redesign implemented into really everything that we do nowadays because of all the technology and digital life that we have. So let's have you just go over those seven steps, okay? And I I would, of course, and I would love to reach app designers and the little guys, just as you mentioned, because that's who we really have to reach. Privacy by design is all about embedding privacy right from the from the beginning into the design of information technologies, into business practices, operational processes. You're starting something new. You're going to design an app, whatever it is. Think about the consequences in terms of any personally identifiable information you might be gathering or collecting from your clients or customers or whoever. If you're gathering any personal information, by which we mean there's personal identifiers linked to the data, then the best way to protect that is to proactively embed privacy protective measures into the design and data architecture of whatever it is you're designing. It's that simple and that's complex. Um, so the seven principles have to do with proactively trying to prevent 
privacy harms from arising by doing this, by embedding privacy into design, as opposed to allowing the harm to arise and then after the fact, offering some system of redress after the fact. We want to avoid that. We want to avoid the harm. And the best way of doing it is by making privacy the default setting. By that I mean if privacy can be embedded into the system in a way that your customers don't have to ask for it, they can be assured you've got privacy. The information you give us, we only use for this purpose for which we're collecting the information, and we're not going to use it for anything else unless you tell us to share it with other parties. It's as simple as that. And if you do that, getting that kind of privacy assurance to your customers, they will love you, they will give you their repeat business, and it will attract other customers. So I always say that's the privacy payoff to businesses by embedding privacy by design into all that you do. And security is a big feature of this. While privacy, the term privacy subsumes a much broader set of protections than security alone, if you don't have strong security, you're not going to have strong privacy. So make Mm -hmm. sure you've got end-to-end, full life cycle protection. And one of the essentials of privacy by design is, I would say it's not zero-sum, it's positive-sum. By that, I mean zero-sum is the dated paradigm we've been operating under, where it's one interest versus another. People often say it's privacy versus security or privacy versus marketing. It's nonsense. Boot out versus substitute and. The power of and is dramatic. So why can't we have privacy and security? Why can't we have privacy and business interests? We can. We've demonstrated this again and again in different ways that we've operationalized privacy by design, which you'll find on our website. So it's all about respecting the user being very clear with the user, what you're doing with their information, visibility and transparency are key. All of this is absolutely critical. And as you mentioned, Privacy by Design was made an international standard in 2010. And since then, it's been translated into 35 official languages around the world. So any major language you can think of, we had it translated into that. So take a look at our website for more information. But it will be a benefit to existing companies and new companies that are starting out because it will give your customers the kind of privacy assurance they need. And citizens, in terms of government programs, it will give them the kind of trust that is presently lacking in the wake of the uh, Edward Snowden revelations. And, and let's talk a little bit about that, because I know that you've been working on guidelines for public surveillance. And, and yeah. that, you know, that whole thing comes up if this is like this yeah. big... Pandora's box with all of these revelations, and I know it's affected every country in the world, including Canada. So tell us what kinds of things you've been working on with regard to this public surveillance. Well, there is no reason why you can't have surveillance, which at times is indeed necessary, but why you can't have it in being conducted in an accountable way fashion. And by that we mean if you have, you being the law enforcement agency or the police officer, if you have a legitimate reason, you have reasonable grounds to believe that some suspicious activity is taking place, take your court, take your case in front of a a judge and get a court order, get a warrant to conduct the kind of surveillance you're contemplating. Data gathering by the state should inherently be restricted to that which is reasonably necessary to meet legitimate social objectives, and so it should be subjected to to judicial controls over its retention and subsequent use. The state has to be accountable, and in order to be accountable, it has to be open about its information handling practices. And what we're finding out with 
through uh, Edward Snowden, not just about the NSA, also in my country, in Canada, it's called the CSC, the Communications Security Establishment. They are both complicit in obtaining massive amounts of information through surveillance that is unknown to the public, yeah. is so under the cover, and that's the problem. Nobody knows it's taking place until now, and there is no oversight, in truly independent oversight, to ensure the kind of accountability that we're seeking. So it's critical to have greater openness, greater accountability, judicial oversight. We, we have to have the authority to properly engage in these intrusive surveillance activities. And the powers, generally speaking, should be strongly restricted to very limited classes of, um, of actors such as, you know, law enforcement officers, police officers, who are given the authority to do this. So we're, we're seeking much greater transparency and accountability and, and an end to this, trust me, we know better, way in which surveillance is, we're learning is now being conducted on a massive scale. Yeah, you know, in, in our country we have the FISA court. And, yes. and, and the FISA court for a long time, you know, has really kind of almost rubber stamped any time the government wanted to do surveillance. And of course, a lot of this has happened without even the FISA court, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yes. I, but one of the issues when you're talking about judicial oversight is even with our FISA court, when you have a judge, there's only really the, the law enforcement there or prosecution yes. or, the, or the CIA or whoever it is, is the only one coming before the court. So they don't get to hear the other side about way, maybe why we shouldn't be doing this. And so that's yes. one issue. I don't know what, what do you have in Canada? Do you have something similar like the FISA court? No, you... believe it or not, we have less. Oh. So it's hard, it's hard to imagine that our circumstances are worse, but we don't even have the equivalent of a FISA court. There is um, a retired judge who acts as the commissioner who oversees the uh, department's activities, but the, this uh, retired judge, the, the commissioner, is not an independent officer like I am. I'm an independent officer of the legislature. He reports through the government, through the minister who's responsible for administering this program. So there's no independence whatsoever, and you actually have it much better. And my understanding is, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed, that one of the recommendations yes. of the presidential committee uh, to President Obama is that there be an independent, an, the other side representative, right. like a privacy advocate or a public service advocate, whatever you're going to call him, right. so that... It's not just one side being presented. I actually have sympathy for the FISA court. If all they're being presented is by evidence on one side, which will be compelling, right? making the case for disclosure, then of course they're going to get their way. You have to have both sides of the picture presented, and hopefully that recommendation, hopefully, will see the light of day. Um, but through President Obama's uh, decisions that I think he's going to announce on, uh, on the 17th. Let me ask you something. Um, what, with regard to your position as being independent, for these things that are being revealed about what's happening with your own uh, collection of of uh, sensitive data, like what you know, I guess when we found out about Snowden, we also found out about what's happening in other countries. Yes. So, do you have any authority with regard to to that issue when you're you're setting forth these guidelines? Do you have any? Yeah. Well, Technically, I don't, because I operate at the state level, and that's at the federal level. The reason I say technically is I feel that this is of 
a matter of such important magnitude right. that even though I strictly, I, I technically don't have the strict uh, jurisdiction I need to to speak out, I'm speaking out anyway as a, <laughs> as a citizen and representing the, the province of Ontario or the state of Ontario is the most populous and just under 50% of the population of Canada lives in my province in Ontario, right. over 40%. So I feel that in representing the people who live in my jurisdiction, I, I've been speaking out on this. I just feel compelled to. So until someone shuts me down. <laughs> I'm going to keep speaking out against this because I just think it's an abomination. It, it absolutely is. So, um, so in terms of the metadata, like what, what have you all thought about when you're trying to put together these guidelines? What, what has your office been doing about the issue of the metadata itself? We, we issued a paper on metadata right after, I think it was in July, I think it was June then uh, of this year that Mr. Snowden came out with his revelations. And then I remember hearing Diane Feinstein saying, well, it's only metadata. No big deal. It's just metadata. We're not actually listening into your conversations. And I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> metadata is actually more revealing than who said what to whom in the actual conversation because metadata connects all the dots. It reveals the time and duration of your calls who you're speaking to, who they're speaking to, who's connecting to whom. So the next month, July, we issued a paper immediately called A Primer on Metadata, Separating Fact from Fiction. Mm. And we've had a lot of positive, a lot of uh, very positive comments on that paper because it illustrated how incredibly re- revealing metadata was and how it's not just about listening into the actual words in the conversation, this can be much more revealing and telling about your movements throughout the day and the people with whom you associate and speak. I mean, it was just amazing. We It's mass surveillance. We, it really is. Oh, it's so mass surveillance. And I have to tell you, um, your Electronic Frontier Foundation, the yes. EFF, has yes. done an amazing video called Stop Watching Us, mm. which is so awesome. It's a short uh, four or five minute video, tell your people about it, to go and look at it, because it is awesome. And I just, I'm encouraging everyone to get out and do something about it. In fact, we're holding a public symposium uh, in Toronto on uh, January the 28th, International Privacy Day, on specifically this issue of uh, mass surveillance and how the public has to stand up we have to take a stand against this to get our governments to understand how strongly we object to this horrible invasion of our privacy. And for, for no, I was going to say for no reason, I'm sure there are some good reasons, but we have yet to see any. In fact, in the Washington Post on January 13th, there was a wonderful article on uh, the NSA's uh, phone data metadata program. And it said that they had a study that they pointed to that it hadn't prevented any attacks whatsoever. And this is the kind of thing we have to, you know, because the law enforcement and the NSA keep saying, well, it's preventing all these terrorist attacks, and if we didn't have it, then we could have prevented 9-11. This article, this study, and others have said nonsense. In analyzing, they analyzed 225 terrorism cases within the United States. They said the metadata program, this kind of program, hasn't been responsible in any of these for um, being successful. Traditional law enforcement, I mean, this isn't opposed to law enforcement. Of course, traditional law enforcement means very successful, but not this kind of massive surveillance. 
It's interesting because I'm an Orange County Sheriff Reserve here in Orange County, and I went to this Homeland Security meeting where we talked about all of the foiled uh, terrorist attacks right here in Orange County, and none of it had to do with with metadata. It had to do with, like, just visual things and, like, just law enforcement being really smart and picking up on things. Uh, Just amazing stuff. Like, one of the things was just um, one of the off-duty sheriffs was uh, running uh, by Huntington Beach, and uh, he saw a guy taking pictures of, of the Hyatt and this bridge and, uh, in Huntington Beach. And he didn't think of it. And then he came back and the guy was taking more pictures. So then it started to like, wait a minute, what is this guy doing? You know? And then sure enough, he foiled this terrorist attack. So, I mean, this was just by running by. And that's the yeah. kind of stuff that they're ta- we're talking about in Orange County is to just have everybody on the lookout, just like they say yeah. at the airport, to be on the lookout. That's what foils a lot of these things. Absolutely. What they call boots on the ground, just actual people with their eyes open watching out and, you know, the activities of law enforcement on the ground. This is what we need. Yes. So this leads me to this question about your proposed privacy protective surveillance. And this is going to be another one of your brilliant ideas, I know. (laughs) So uh, just tell us about that. I'll try to keep it simple. This was uh, trying to acknowledge the importance of some surveillance on the part of law enforcement and intelligence agencies, but being conducted in a way that was respectful of privacy, meaning if you must get information, as, as we suspect that at times they must, then at the very least, any data that you access in terms of these kind of searches online and offline, do it in a way that encrypts the data. So you're searching, um, you want to do a metadata analysis, you, you encrypt the data that you're accessing, and you put it through a proper uh, search function in such a way that uh, and you can do this through, there's an extension of artificial intelligence that talks about um, enables privacy to be embedded directly into the design of architecture and architecture of uh, what we call intelligent virtual agents. These are uh, software agents that would scour the web searching for certain features that you had programmed it with. Like, I'll give you such a simple example of uh, fertilizer. Okay. Uh, who has been purchasing a lot of fertilizer? Right. So you send out these, these software agents and they get you a list of people fertilizing. Uh, buying fertilizer, but you encrypt the data because you don't know how is that fertilizer being used, who's using it. So you have to subject it through a proper analysis through something we call homomorphic encryption, which is a type of encryption that enables the actual data analytics to take place on encrypted values. So nothing is revealed, nothing is in plain text, and through that process, you will learn so much information that is critical to your assessment of the value of this information. For example, who who is accessing this fertilizer? Is it a banker or is it a, a, a farmer? Farmer, yeah. farmer obviously has uses massive uses for fertilizer. Sure. A banker, a terrorist, not so much. So you put it through this kind of analysis, and then if at the end of the day you come up with still positive findings, you take that information, you go to a judge. You present your case. You make your case. We have reasonable grounds to believe that this individual is engaging in uh, bomb-making, and here, here's why. Right. If you convince the judge, then he or she gives you a warrant, which gives you access to the decryption key. You decrypt it, and away you go. You've got the individual's name and 
personal identifiers and you can go after them. But this is balances privacy. All the data are protected until such time that you can make the case in front of a judge and then get the decryption key. So it allows for both privacy and surveillance, legitimate surveillance activities to take place. Exactly. And this protects our, our, at least in our country, our Fourth Amendment and our Fifth Amendment. And this is really what our whole country was founded upon, is that, you know, that there wouldn't be any search and seizure unless there was a warrant. And so this gets back to, I mean, it doesn't seem to me to be a rocket scientist, especially when we've got the software that can do this. We have neural networks that can can look at these things and, and then to go in and get um, uh, you know, we can still have the FISA court, which means that you can get something in 72 hours. You can get a warrant. Yeah. And then, of course, to have that balance like you were talking about that's being uh, promoted to try and have both sides, um, you know, argue before the court and see if the court can make a legitimate decision whether or not the, a warrant should be issued. So, you know, yeah. I mean, why it, it seems to me so terrifying that um, that this is happening not only in our country, but has happened in your country, and that we've been using this kind of surveillance when it just feels so out of um, out of sync with our values in this country and in your country. Yes, no, I couldn't agree more. The good news is, I think we are going to see the other side. I think things are coming around. I've I've been honored to uh, been invited to speak at the Pentagon by the Department of Defense on two occasions now. I've gone down there at their invitation to tell them about privacy protective surveillance, to tell them about privacy by design. They've been very receptive. And I also went to Monterey in California to present it to their research arm. So there has been some uptake, and that's the good news. Let me ask you then, Anne, what do they tell you? Do they tell you that um, given the the software that's available, that this is reasonable, or do you think they're just giving you lip service? No, I think it's more than lip service, because if it's lip service, they don't have to invite you back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, once is enough. (laughs) It looks good, and you're so engaging and fun, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I I guess I'm not trusting anymore. (laughs) I think they know that the public is... Very, very distrustful now. Uh, trust in terms of state, the government is at an all-time low. Interest in privacy is at an all-time high. So I think they're abundantly aware of this, and they want to accommodate as best they can. So I think there is a genuine interest for change right now. Well, I think we should just bring you here when you're done being uh, a privacy <laughs> commissioner up there and just adopt you here and make you a, a, oh, an honorary kind. Californian and keep you warm away from, you know, the cold weather in Toronto. That I would appreciate. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, we don't have a lot of time. Um, I just wanted you to mention you. I know you've published a new big uh, paper on big data. Oh, so yes. just tell us real quick because we're just about out of time. If you can take a look at our website, uh, privacybydesign.ca, we've published our second paper on, on big data. And the important thing is you can have big data, but you also have to have what I call big privacy. And by that I mean if you start by de-identifying the data, and there are very strong de-identification tools out there now, de-identify the data, remove the personal identifiers, or encrypt the personal identifiers, aggregate the data, or add some noise to the data so it doesn't appear personally identifiable. If you take any of those measures, then you can do whatever you want with the data. I'm all in favor of big data. I'm all in favor of the enormous research opportunities that it presents, but you can do big data analytics and privacy as well. Let's try to do both. And and that may help protect us from all these huge security breaches as well to be able to 
Exactly. <laughs> just just look at Target. Need we need we say any more other Target. than Target these days? Neiman Marcus, my favorite store. Yes, I mean, yes. when, <laughs> stay out of there, Mark. I know, I know, I know. I have to cancel that credit card. Okay. Well, we love you, Anne. You are just so wonderful. Anne Kavukian, who is uh, Dr. Anne Kavukian, PhD. She is the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, Canada, and she is really my hero and every a lot of people's hero. And she's doing great work. And we can't wait to see you in March and at the International Association of Privacy Professionals where you're going to be speaking. And just keep up the great work. We just honor you so much, Anne. Oh, thank you so much, Mari. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. And we will have you back again. So just give your website and it's time to go. Okay. It's uh, Privacy by Design, all one word, privacybydesign.ca. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening Bye-bye. to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.